Podcast. The Gospel according to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. It's that time to get started. I'll give you a second to get settled, everybody. All right, let's go to the word. Let's go to the word of God. And before we do that, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we just admit right from the start that we don't have the capacity to understand truths that are spiritually discerned. We need the spirit for that. And so Uh, Thankfully, you're here, Holy Spirit. You're in our hearts for that very reason, to show us the things about Christ, to open up our hard hearts and our cluttered brains so that we could hear about life that's truly life and not mere existence. So help us, God. We're wanting to be touched by you. In Christ's name, amen. amen. So when we get to heaven... Uh, It might be interesting to take a poll, though I think that we already know the results. John had a revelation, didn't he, uh, of the place that we call heaven, and he described it as a full house. The place is packed. Uh, He says in there in chapter 7, I looked around me and I saw before the throne a large, vast multitude um, which no man could count. That's a high number. And uh, from every nation, tribe, and language gathered around the Lord Jesus. And so I don't know if we ask that crowd, hey, we're taking a poll. How many of you got saved out of a wealthy, affluent life? Raise your hand. And then uh, now we want to ask the question, how many here are in heaven? You've been rescued out of a poorer more needy, a more humble life. How many of you? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's what the first service did. Everybody started like, that's me, that's me. Yeah, and, uh, and it is, right? That's really um, the truth here is, is that uh, the truth about what Paul said to the Corinthians to remind them they were always goo-goo and Uh, Gaga about the wrong kinds of values, the wrong kinds of people, envying everybody who uh, had some esteem or had some money and all of this. But so he reminded them there. He said, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, that few of you in this congregation were well-educated and wise in the world's understanding or powerful or wealthy when God called you. And there's a reason for that, really. Uh, And what's true about uh, the congregation in Corinth would be true about every Christian uh, congregation, probably, and also, in turn, true about the congregation around the throne in heaven. 
that in, in, it, it's not the affluent so much, though God calls them. Those who tend to and are likely to respond are those who are aware of their need. And sometimes riches and success get in the way and they kind of lull us into some kind of deceptive uh, understanding that we don't really need the Lord. And so that may be part of the reason that it's more like the foolish, the insignificant, the powerless, the marginalized, and the poor who find favor with God. Not that being poor or rich has really anything to do with it. It doesn't... Riches and success are not a problem with God. He uses that, and it's a wise thing to invest and be diligent and to be ambitious for him, to do all things well and to work hard and enjoy the fruit of your labors. Nothing wrong with that. The problem is our hearts and how we respond to all of that. And it gets in the way of our relationship with God. And when that happens, it's no good at all. And so in keeping with this truth, here in Matthew 19, we have two case studies before us. Usually most people don't see them connected, but I did here. Uh, You've got exhibit A and exhibit B and the question, um, how do you get to heaven? So in the exhibit A, uh, you've got the blessing of being helpless. Most people wouldn't say helplessness is a blessing, but Jesus thought it was. He said, listen, Uh, When he saw the disciples rebuking the parents who were bringing little kids to him, he told his disciples, what are you doing? These kids have qualities that everybody in heaven will have. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, right? That humbleness, that, that understanding that unless somebody helps me, I can't have a life because I'm a kid. A four-year-old is pretty much dead without assistance, and he gladly receives and gladly acknowledges his humble circumstance, and Jesus just calls that blessed man. God calls to somebody in their need who understands they have a need, and they are quicker to respond than somebody who doesn't sense it. So exhibit B right on the heels of Jesus say, heaven belongs to these kinds of qualities that you see in the children, right on the heels of what helps you to get in. Now, here's somebody who's hindered, who walks away without eternal life. As far as we know, he walked away from Jesus. Exhibit B, now the hardship of being affluent. Exhibit B, as I've been calling it, you know, the rich man, the rich young ruler, as we like to call it, call him. He has everything he could ever want except what he most needs. A relationship with God and the assurance in his soul that his sins are forgiven and he's going to live forever instead of dying forever, as the Bible gives the alternative to. And so something's missing in the man who's uh, from all uh, outward perception. Something's missing. They think, how could anything? He's got it all, but he knows he's hurting and he's empty. And so uh, there's this conversation we're going to look at 
today. It's very well known. Um, uh, try as the Lord does to reason with this young man to show him his need. That's it. It's not even about the riches. It's not riches bad. That is not the moral of the story, though I've heard it taught that way. The moral of the story is you can't let riches get in the way of your relationship with God. You can't, and the, the moral of the story is you've got to be aware of your desperate need and brokenness, spiritually speaking, because if you don't think you need to be saved, why would you call out to be saved? So that's really the problem. Not about the stuff. It's always about the heart. Not about the number in the account. It's about the attitude of the heart and the mind. And so let's take a look at this guy. It's really quite uh, a story here. Uh, starting at verse 16, we'll walk through it. Jesus is doing, he has a strategy. He's trying, think, keep this in the back of your mind. He's trying to get the guy to see he's helpless. Because he thinks he can do it. I can do it. What good thing do I have to do? Do, do, do. Right? Okay, so now a man, Luke tells us, a ruler. So what I did is I went to Mark and Luke and took all the details Matthew left out and brought it all together for a richer, deeper understanding. Uh, Now this man who happened to be a ruler came up to Jesus and falling on his knees, he asked, good teacher, what good thing must I do? To get eternal life. Tell me what to do to earn it. Why do you, first of all, why do you call me good and ask me what is good? Jesus replies, There's only one who's good, God alone. Oh, he should have caught that right there, but he didn't. So Jesus continues, Okay, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? Jesus is kind of like, seriously? Are you kidding me? All of them. Okay, sorry. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, okay, let's, how about do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. So commandment six, commandment seven, commandment eight, commandment nine, and commandment five. And then Leviticus chapter 19, 18, love your neighbor with the same kind of love you have for yourself. All these have I kept since I was a boy, the young man says. What else you got for me, Jesus? Check, 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 check. Oh, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Feel sorry for him. Like, oh, man. He said, okay, last ditch effort here to shock you. Go and sell all your stuff. Give it to the Redwood Gospel Mission, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard that, he goes away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you what, (laughs) this is the truth. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And let me just say that the poorest person in this room is richer than most of the rest of the world. So he might be talking about uh, Americans here. I tell you the truth, it's harder. It will be easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle for a rich man 
to enter the kingdom of God. And it's not because it's riches. And then rich is bad. You can't have riches or you can't go to heaven. No, that's not the problem. Okay, next. When the disciples heard this, that's my favorite thing to do. Is they're astonished. They're flabbergasted. They say, well, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, yeah, seriously. <laughs> with man, this would be impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We'll stop there because there's a lot to talk about there. It divides quite nicely if you go with the flow. Note takers, you've got the seekers got a question. The Savior's got an answer. The seekers got a problem. The Savior's got a solution. So we'll throw that first paragraph up there with the seeker's question. It's not an honest question because if you're seeking honestly and you come to the answer who's standing right in front of you, you should have gone away with the answer. So here are the verses now before you. I'll paraphrase as I like to do uh, as you read along. So Matthew in the Greek has that word that King James goes, behold. It means, wow, look, something amazing is happening here. But the NIV tones it down to now. You know, boring. Okay, so now, uh, uh, behold, wow, this guy comes running out of nowhere. A wealthy young man comes barreling toward Jesus and falls to his knees. Good teacher, what kind of good behavior will get me into heaven? Why are you calling me good and asking about good things to do when there's only one who is good? Okay, you know the commandments. Let's start there. Get busy. Obey them. All. That's the kind of the sense here of how he uses the word. You need to keep these commands. And so let's leave that up there. We'll kind of walk uh, our way through there. So here's this seeker who seems desperate and reverent and sincere. He's got everything. He's youthful. He may be attractive. He's got some influence. I'll tell you what ruler means. And he's got a lot of money because it says he was very wealthy. But something's eating at him. It's called a conscience. He's got a dull ache inside. He's arrived. He's got everything everybody's been dreaming of and telling uh, everybody that that's what you need in life. And he gets there and he's like, ah, what's wrong? And so he goes running to Jesus to try to figure it out. And what's crazy to me is he comes to the one who John calls the eternal life. One of Jesus' names is eternal life. This is the true God and eternal life, Jesus. Okay, so he comes to eternal life asking how to get eternal life. And because he won't admit that he's in a humble circumstance and can't do it himself, he goes away without. This is crazy. This is mystifying and intriguing. You know, he may be on record as the guy who gets the closest to heaven but misses it. He's standing in front of God in a body who's called eternal life, asking for eternal life, how he could get it. And uh, for all we know, he left sad and uh, not interested in what Jesus' idea to help him get into the posture to receive. Okay, and so, yeah, so he's got a lot going for him, right? 
from the world's point of view, he's got it made, right? And all that stuff is just kind of getting in the way. So we know he's rich from verse 22. We know he's young from verse 20. And we know he's a ruler from Luke chapter 18. So hence, we call him the rich young ruler. Now, ruler means he's the president of the synagogue. That's what the word means. He's the ruler of the, if you want to think of it as church, uh, but it's the synagogue where you had to have 10 men in a, a Jewish setting, uh, and they'd come there to, to do what we do, uh, to celebrate uh, the Lord, to uh, read his word, to pray, uh, and to worship and all of this. Now, uh, he is not necessarily a rabbi, though he knows the Bible because he chooses the readings every Saturday, Sabbath day. He's the head of the board. Think of him like that. He runs the entire place. He, he's the CEO of that synagogue. He's got the power there. And so he and the synagogue was the center of Jewish life and uh, really he presided over everything about that uh, service. All right, so he knows his Bible better than Peter, James, and John. He keeps religious laws. He's a Jew. He's like a pillar of the Jewish community. He eats kosher unto God. Uh, he says the prayers. He knows where the scriptures are. He gives tithes and offerings. He attends the holy services. Uh, he's a pillar of the religious community, as I said. And add to that, he's well off. Well, how did a young man, he's called young, get to be so wealthy? Well, maybe, you know, he bought low and sold high. Or maybe he invested in a startup fish factory by the lake, right? And their specialty was filet of fish and it went viral. I don't know. Uh, or daddy just passed and left it all to Junior. Doesn't matter how he's got it. It's more of a curse. It's more of a curse. Because if he perishes, I can assure you that in hell, he will have the thought if only I were born dirt poor, I might have had a better chance. And so, yeah, things aren't always as they appear. What does the proverb say? One man pretends to be rich, but is really poor. Another man pretends to be poor and has great wealth. You know, things are not always as they appear, and it's certainly not because everybody looks at him and says, man, I wish I were him, and now he's falling at the feet of Jesus saying, something's wrong, I'm missing something, I don't have everything I need, I'm not happy, I'm miserable, none of this stuff gives me what I'm longing for, a relationship with God, a, a sense that my sins are dealt with, a sense that I can walk through the gates of eternal life. I don't have that. Junior is feeling hollow inside. I... As you, many of you know, Barb and I served in Japan as missionaries for four years, and we worked in this little Christian church, they're all little, in the middle of a rice paddy uh, in uh, Kanazawa, Japan. And uh, there were just 25 people in the church, as most Christian churches are about that size or smaller. And so there we are, and I met this man. He has five kids and his wife, and they were just a beautiful Japanese family. You never see five kids. So he was just delightful, and we couldn't speak to one another because of the language so much. And uh, he had this happy countenance. He just beamed. 
by the name Watanabe. Watanabe-san. So I said Watanabe-san through a translator. What's your story, man? How did a guy in the middle of rural Japan come to know the Lord and love him so much like you do? And I get moved every time I remember this. A translator, he's speaking in Japanese and he's shining. And then he gets a look on his face and he said, through the translator, I had a big hole in my heart and Jesus filled it. You see, we can relate, can we not? Because inside of every heart, there's a God-shaped void. And you can fill it with what he tried to fill it with, like Solomon. Oh, my word. Uh, The Lord said of King Solomon, comparatively speaking, King Solomon will have been the richest person to have ever lived. So the, the, the man had, and he was attractive, He had beauty, he had money, he had wisdom, power, women, and palace, and he wrote 12 chapters from the viewpoint of, if you don't have God, none of what I have makes any sense at all. Meaningless, meaningless. He says, life is about as fulfilling as chasing after the wind. That's not fun. Have you ever tried to chase the wind? (laughs) I've seen people try it. (laughs) And so, yeah, the rich young ruler. He does a few things right. And uh, there are three R's here, note takers. First of all, he's running. Well, yeah, that's really smart. When you feel like your soul is on the line and somebody like Christ is near, could, could remedy that terrible gnawing and nagging inside, yeah, you, you run. You, you want to escape judgment? And you hear a possibility to not go to hell, but go to heaven? Yeah, you make haste. And, and then secondly, he's reverent. He falls on his knees. That's a good thing. But, you know, it's such a testimony that here's this guy and everybody's looking at him. He's the kingpin of the synagogue and he's got money and influence and everybody thinks he's the happiest guy in the world, but he's bowing to a nobody, to an unpopular man who's poor. What does that say about, look at, he's bowing before the insignificant, rejected, despised, poor guy, the unpopular one. Because you, sir, have something that this rich, affluent, uh, happy-go-lucky guy doesn't have. And so that speaks volumes right there. He wants eternal life. And he's respectful. He says, good teacher. Now, Jesus is going to push back with this good teacher part. We're going to spend some time as we are right now getting established. Uh, But if this guy could have caught just what Jesus was saying to him by his pushback, like I said, the story could have ended in an amazing way and in a good way when he says, okay, good teacher. And he says, excuse me, first of all, dude, why are you calling me good? There's only one who is good. Only God is good. And Jesus is trying in the entire gist of the conversation, but even starting right here, to help him and the entire world overcome their biggest and damning misunderstanding the world has ever known, the definition of what a good person is. So the biblical definition is pretty easy. 
It means good. It means intrinsically, through and through, morally pure. Period. It doesn't mean uh, mostly good or virtually good or usually good or nine times out of ten good or uh, good when I feel like being good uh, or it doesn't mean more good than most people and it doesn't mean more good than bad. No, a good person is good in thought, in deed, in word, in motivation, in attitude, in things they do, in things they refrain from doing, all the time, every time, never a slip up because the definition of good is good. So a good person is incapable of doing anything not good because they're good. That's what good people do. They do good only. Ah. Well, that's a different way of thinking about it, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Jesus has to say, man, no one is good except God alone because we have missed the target. The word sin means to miss the bullseye. or to cr- It has many meanings. One of them is also to cross over a line, to trespass, or to be lawless, to say you've commanded this. Who cares what you think? I'm a lawless commandless kind of person, or it can mean morally depraved or evil. So the Bible says that's what we are by nature. We were born that way. It's not a happy thought, but it's true. And it's the bad news that will bring you to the good news, because until you get in touch with your total depravity, that through and through every cell in your body wants to do its own thing and, and, and not obey God, until you get there, Uh, you will not call out for a savior. Now it's confusing uh, uh, because some sinners are less sinful. They're more in control of their sinful nature than others. And some sinners can do nice things that appear to be good. and, And by comparison, we would say they're good. But that a bad person can do a good and nice thing doesn't change their status. It means that bad people are capable of once in a while doing something that's good. That's all that means. I mean, really, I I mean, if your car's constantly breaking down, you wouldn't call it a good car, would you? Oh, my car's good. It breaks down every other day, you know? Or, you know, that's a good circuit. It just shorts out a lot, right? Yeah. No, 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 no. That's not a good car, and it's not a good circuit. It's a bad car, and it's a bad circuit. And this is the thing. Now, here's what is it. The big moment has come and gone. Jesus says, no one's good except God. So why are you asking me a good thing? Listen, why are you asking me what good thing you can do if nobody is good? So what is he saying? He should have paused. He could have said, oh, man, how true, Lord. So then, since nobody's good, how can a bad person like me inherit eternal life? That's all Jesus was looking for. And then he would have had a different answer, he would have said, trust in me, because I'll do the good work you can't do. That's why it could have just ended right there. But now, because 
he thinks he can add eternal life like to his portfolio. What can I do? I want to work it. I want to earn it. So Jesus has to bring out the big elephant gun of the law, the commandments that were designed to kill us of our self-pride and self-righteousness. There, Galatians chapter 3 says, the law was given to take our hand and lead us to Christ to show us you're a sinner and you need to be saved. That was the purpose. Of course the law was also given to keep us all in check and to show us right from wrong and how embarrassing that he has to put in uh, command form, don't murder people, <laughs> don't cheat on your wife, don't, do all the, don't lie. He has to command it. Wouldn't that be obvious? If we were good, we wouldn't need a command in stone. Could you not take stuff that doesn't belong to you? Oh, my word. And so he brings out the gun. He aims it at this dude because he just wants to add eternal life to all his other possessions his way. So 17b says, okay, the seeker's got a question. Now the Savior's got an answer. So 17b, if you want to play this game, you're going to lose. But okay, let's go down this road. If you want to find life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man says. Well, Jesus says, seriously? Are you kidding me? Uh, Don't murder people. Don't cheat on your wife. Don't take stuff that doesn't belong to you. Don't lie about people. Treat your parents with utmost respect. Love people with the same intensity and focus that you have for yourself. I've kept every one of these commands ever since I was a little boy. What am I still missing? Answer, you're missing a little honesty, (laughs) sir. And when it says all these commands I've kept in the Greek, when you put all in the front, it's emphasizing all. So he's underlining, saying, yeah, I got this. Check, 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 check. Commandment six, check. Seven, check. Eight, check. Nine, check. Commandment number five, check. And the thing about loving everybody, check, check, check. All the time, every day, since I was six years old, what else? That's when Jesus is going to go, wow, I just love him, I, you know, in, in a pity. It broke Jesus' heart is what the word means. But we'll stop here and look at this now. And so, yeah, so how about a little honesty, Junior? You know, come on, really? You've kept them all, you know. I once asked somebody, I was sharing the gospel when I taught at this vocational school in the East Bay and I said, uh, what about your sin? And he said, what sin? I don't sin. I said, oh, yeah, you've never told a lie. And he goes, no, I haven't. And then I said, well, congratulations. You just told your first right now. <laughs> My word, you've never lied. He goes, I don't call it lying. I, it's part of the human condition. You call it a lie. I just call it, you know. Truth challenged. I don't know what he said, but yeah, so uh, yeah, you've committed command, you've broken commandment number nine to bear false testimony, which means to speak falsely in any matter, lying, equivocating, or any way devising to deceive anyone else. And he's been guilty of that, and he just was. 
to God who knows about all his sins. And so uh, Jesus just told him, look, in fact, you've really not kept all these because why? What did Jesus just tell him? There's nobody good. So you just, I, I just gave you all these commandments and you said, check, 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 because I'm good. But you're making me out to be a liar, sir, because if we say we have no sin, we make him who says, yes, you're sinners, out to be a liar. Didn't I just tell you nobody's good? Now, if nobody's good, that means everybody is, okay, if you want to say it, not good. If that's more helpful to you, go ahead. But there's another way to say not good. And it starts with the letter B. All right, good. So if he says no one is good, no, not one, then uh, everybody is morally uh, depraved. That's just no other way to say it. And that's why we need a savior, right? So when he says, I've checked, 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 here's what he means. And a lot of the Jews felt this way. And a lot of Americans feel this way. If you ask them, what do you feel about the Ten Commandments? Oh, yeah, we need them. They're good. Are they from God? Yeah, they're good. Did you hear they're trying to take them down? And yeah, that's terrible. In this way, they're saying, I revere them. I respect them. And by and large, I try to live my life in regard of keeping them. And so this is what the man means. Like, yeah, yeah, they're good. They're, they're from God. Who wouldn't want to do these things? They're right and good, and I try. Boom, wrong. That's not keeping them. So since everybody had a superficial understanding of what it means to be a good person and keep the Ten Commandments and excuse themselves by a superficial understanding of technically I didn't commit the deed, so therefore I've never committed murder, Jesus comes along on the Sermon on the Mount and says, yes, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder, but I tell you, you better think again. You think you just because you didn't pull the trigger, you're, you're, you didn't break the commandment? If you call someone a, a moron with hate in your heart, you're ready to say drop dead or treat them as if they were dead to you? You're dead to me? He says you've get, you're, you're guilty of breaking the spirit of why I gave you the command. And how about this, gentlemen? He says, you know how many there are adulterers there are that never committed the deed? They're faithful to their wives, but they're guilty of sin because Jesus said when you commit adultery, when you lust, I should say, in your hearts after a woman, especially if you're married, you are guilty of committing adultery in your heart. That's Jesus' word. And so you have a ton of people think that, oh, I'm pretty, I've been faithful to my wife. No, you haven't. If you do porn, you are an adulterer from God's point of view. But people just excuse themselves. We always go so easy on ourselves, don't we? We hold everybody else's feet to the fire. But for us, we're like, you know, I've never committed adultery. (laughs) Really? That's why you're so in need of a savior That's why instead of loathing yourself, you can love grace and love the Lord and turn from those wicked ways by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so since he's dead set on working his way, uh, that he can do something, uh, the Lord uh, brings out the commands to make sure that he knows that he can't. And so 
As I said, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 says the purpose of the commands was to uh, shoot us down and show us that we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so, yes, indeed, we go on to uh, verse 21 because he answers without flinching, yes, check, I keep the commands, what's next? So verse 21 starts off, we'll just go down 24 for now. Jesus' heart goes out to this guy. He says, okay, man, here's the big ticket item. My last ditch effort with you, got to get to you, got to wake you up. I got to make you say, no, I can't do that. I need help. I'm a sinner. So in order to do that, I'm going to go for the jugular right now. He says, "Um, give all your stuff to the poor. Sell it all, like all of it. And then you'll have riches in heaven, then come follow me. You ready for that? Well, first of all, number one, Jesus is speaking to an individual who's got a hang-up. So Jesus is doing spiritual surgery to get in here and take away the blockage for this one guy. He is certainly not giving a presentation for the uh, a universal truth of the gospel. <laughs> and how crazy would that be? We know we're saved by grace. It is a free gift of God, right? So he's certainly not telling him, oh, you want to work your way? Well, here's how you do it. You sell all you have, and then we'll see if you sell it all, and you do it right, and then we'll let you in. Uh, no, 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 no. Of course not. He's aiming at his pride. He wants him to say, he wants him to buckle and say, yo, you know what? See, here's what Jesus did. He said, here's the law. Commandment six, seven, eight, nine, five. Commentator said he did that for a reason. They memorized them. They know them. Six, seven, eight, nine, five. Why did he do that? To call attention to 10. Commandment 10 was, is, don't covet other people's stuff. Don't be about materialism. The sin of lusting after more and more. So he goes, six, seven, eight, nine. And the guy's like, oh no, here it comes, the big ticket item, right? And then he skips it and goes to mom and dad. So commentators say, as a religious Jew in charge of the synagogue, he has probably invoked the rabbinic uh, thing called Corbin, where a rich person could say, mom and dad, or anybody, mom and dad, I know I've got a lot of stuff, but anything you could benefit, I can't help you. Because it's all Corbin, which means devoted to God. So he's nailing him, this guy. He's saying, uh, you know, any, do you got a problem with coveting? How have you been treating your parents? Boom. Can we unravel you now and have you start crying and saying, oh, if that's what it takes, I'll never get to heaven because I love stuff. I love stuff more than uh, my wife. I love stuff more than uh, my own soul. I love stuff more than God himself. Oh, wretched man that I am. And I've treated my parents horribly. And to be honest with you, Jesus, I haven't kept any of those commands. I do a good job outwardly. Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to save me from this body of death? And then Jesus could have said and would have said, welcome. We got it. You did it. 
And Jesus wouldn't have to say, now about the stuff, because stuff is bad. No, of course not. Zacchaeus, who was rich like that, tax collector, Jesus went to his house. Zacchaeus got saved. He got his heart touched. He's a rich man. Nobody had to tell him anything. He figured it out. He had so much joy in his heart. He goes, everybody, Jesus is here. My life has changed. I've been touched. Here and now I give half of my stuff to the poor. Oh, I wouldn't have to tell him anything. Now suddenly you're generous with your stuff because you're, you know, you don't have, your stuff doesn't own you anymore. You own your stuff, you see? And so he goes, and by the way, Zacchaeus, if I've wronged anybody, I'll give you four times as much because I just want to give. And then he starts following Jesus. Did Jesus have to say, and then come follow me? You see, Jesus got, would have got the guy to where he needed to be without any addendum about what he does with his stuff because now his soul is saved and he understands he's depraved, he's powerless, he can't do anything. And it was a relationship with God that he was longing for, but he couldn't get the welcome son connection until he humbled himself and said, I can't do a thing. I'm so sorry for asking you what good thing could I do when I realize all I am is just a big, greedy, spoiled brat. Sorry. I don't know why I'm picking on him so bad, but you know, that's what 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 kind of happens here. And so, you know, uh, son, go your way in peace. That's what he could have heard. Uh, continuing on, verse 23. Then Jesus gives him the moral of the story. Here's the sad truth. He says, guys, listen up. Wealthy people, it's hard. It's hard for them to get to heaven. It's easier for a camel to squeeze itself through a little tiny hole in the needle than for somebody with wealth to enter the gates. Not a warning about wealth is bad, as I've been saying, but a warning that riches are dangerous. That's all it is. Riches are dangerous. They hinder, spiritually speaking. That's the point. Stuff is stuff. It's not moral. It's just a stuff. Not bad to have stuff. As I said earlier, Jesus says, uh, the Bible says, it's wise to invest. It's wise to save. It's wise to leave your children an inheritance. So God's not about, not against stuff. You know, look, it's just dangerous. First Timothy chapter six is we're winding down now, verses six through ten. Um, false teachers were coming in to the churches and saying, "Godliness, your relationship with God is a way to make money. God will bless you." You know, kind of the prosperity preaching was happening already. Uh, but he says, "No, no, no, no. Godliness with contentment is great gain." For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, everybody misquotes that, for money is the root of all evil. Money is not the root of anything, it's just money. The heart, the love of it is the root 
of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, money, money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And so he's just saying, watch out, be careful. It'll lull you to sleep. You know, people who can cry out to Alexa and say, hey, Alexa, I need so-and-so. And then in the next day on the doorstep, the thing that you were out of, your daily necessity, is delivered to you on the doorstep because you cried out to Alexa. Those kinds of people are less inclined to feel their need to cry out to God for their daily bread. It's just the way it is. The people in India or Africa or any place in America that's uh, in decline, they get out of bed and they're wondering and they're asking. So affluence can be a big, big blessing. And rich people in the Bible, oh, Lydia, the seller of purple cloth, she financed the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Wait till we meet her and the rewards that, that she's getting because she stewarded wealth in the right, wise way. So this is all about that. I, I, I have a closing, another verse, one more. Uh, the other, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, Command those who are rich in this present world, that's everyone in their room, not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, you see, which is so uncertain. Uh, cast but a glance at riches, and they grow wings and fly away, Proverbs. But put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He'll take care of you. Command them to do good to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they will take hold of the life that is truly life. And so I really like the prayer of this, the, the wise man in Proverbs 30 who says, you know what, God, here's my prayer. Don't give me too little. I don't want to be poor so that I might be tempted to steal, feed myself. And, and disregard my God. But don't give me too much. Don't give me riches. Lest I wake up one day and say, who's the Lord? Ah. Now, that's not a popular prayer at all. You know? In fact, do you guys remember the prayer of Jabez? Oh, my word. I am sorry if you prayed that three times a day. It's a prayer for God to bless you more and more and more with stuff and stuff and stuff. Oh, so that you can be a blessing to others. Yeah, so, oh, everybody's praying this prayer, and there's so many other prayers like this one. I don't want riches. I don't want, I want to live a peaceful, quiet life. I want to do good, and I just need my daily uh, needs supplied. Lord, that's all I'm asking for. And then finishing up with verse 25, when the disciples hear this, they're greatly astonished. Why? They thought, here's a guy who's a synagogue ruler. He has high esteem and he's got wealth. So therefore, anyone with wealth in the Jewish life was considered blessed by God. So here's this guy that we all want to be like. We all esteem. We clap when he walks by. And he's walking away without eternal life. Then who could be saved? And the Lord says, hey, listen, I got some good news. True. Apart from God, nobody, rich or poor, can come to know him. But God is good. And he desires that all people, rich, poor, 
and all alike come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. So here's the takeaway. If we come to God knowing that we're depraved and we're needy, we approach him with honesty. He fills us with good things. But when we get lulled into thinking, we got this, we're good. We don't understand that in the next business meeting, the next transaction, everything that's going on, you don't realize that if God doesn't have his hand on you, it will not go well. But we don't readily see that. So the point of the passage here is just remember and embrace. It's okay to be weak. It's okay to be needy because it's a blessing to be helpless because God helps those who cannot help themselves. Let's pray together. Father God, we just thank you for your great love. Thank you for being here and what you're doing in our hearts and lives. These are good reminders, God, how to reset our thinking to what's true and right. We pray now as we get ready for communion that you would speak to our hearts, God, encourage us, give us wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.